This is a special live recording of Revolving Door Syndrome. Auckland Theatre Company invited us on stage to host the Sunday Forum to discuss the themes of their show, Things That Matter. This play was adapted from Dr David Geller's book of the same name, which tells the story of a health system in crisis and the driving factors of people ending up in his intensive care unit. Things That Matter is a love letter to medicine, Middlemore Hospital and David's advocacy for change. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made an association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Kia ora koutou. thank you so much for joining us. This is our second to last Sunday Forum for the year. Our last Sunday Forum is going to be after the final performance of Switzerland by Joanna Murray-Smith on Sunday the 24th of September. Fab, again, to have you all here, I'll hand over to Dr Nina Su and her panellists. Thank you very much. Kia ora tato. welcome. Thank you guys so much for staying behind after the show. My name's Dr Nina Su and I'm a paediatric and emergency doctor. Um, I'm really excited to host the Sunday Forum. I was asked to do this after starting my podcast called Revolving Door Syndrome. And we called it Revolving Door Syndrome because it felt like healthcare was this revolving door where we were making people a little bit better, people would come to us sick, we'd make them a bit better, but then we'd discharge them home to the same environment that was making them sick in the first place. And I think that sort of vibe is what we're talking about in this play, Things That Matter. We're talking about how health is, it's not just about the healthcare system, it's about how we do education, how we do social welfare, transport, justice system, how everything connects to healthcare and that's what we're talking about on revolving door syndrome. I'm so glad to have been able to watch this show twice. Things that matter are something that this play was so realistic. I think most of the feedback from my um, colleagues has been this is just too real. This is just like my daily work. So if you're gonna you know watch anything that's gonna tell you about what it's like in healthcare, things that matter is it. So I'm really excited to um, introduce my fellow panellists today. So we've got uh, Dr. Mai Maroa David. She's a GP in West Auckland. Uh, she is whakapapa to Te Whakatohia, to Ngai Tuhoi and Ngati Poro and Nui as well. And we've also got Rob Campbell, who is our infamous <laughs> previous chair of Te Whatu Order. He's also, as you see from his jumper, his jacket, part of BBM, working really closely with Dave Latelli down in South Auckland. I'm really excited to bring these two people on. Thank you so much for coming. What do you guys think of the, the show so far? I thought it was very human and knowing David Galler a little bit and knowing what he's tried to do in the health reform process, that wasn't surprising, but yeah, the way it brought out the humanity of people like David and other doctors, you know, the 240,000 people that work in our health services uh, couldn't help but bring tears to your eyes, could it? So it was great. 
Yeah, and just to introduce you a little bit further as well, I'd like to tell the audience about how I met you for the first time as well, Rob. <laughs> so about a year ago, I got a little bit angry on LinkedIn. <laughs> I um, got a little feisty about where the healthcare system was going, and we had a meeting together to talk about where to from here, how are we going to um, fix this problem, our staffing issues, and um, we invited you along to the emergency department that I was working in, and I wanted to just get a vibe of what you felt when you came to that emergency department. Everyone was a bit tired. It was about midnight, I think, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Uh, and it was really good for me because I don't know how many of the people in the audience are on boards or have those kind of governance roles, but one of the worst things about them is that it's very hard to know the truth and not just necessarily the truth in terms of the numbers, but the truth of the way things are. And when you go out on guided tours of the workplace, Everything's prepared and everyone's nice. And that's why ministers can do guided tours all the time. And they come away thinking, that was nice. The people all seem very pleasant. Oh, so well staffed. Yeah. Everyone in such a good mood. Everything the, was fine. The department's so, so clean. So it was great for me. I, I had made the practice at some other places of, of doing that and not going unannounced to the staff. But I, one of my biggest things when I was in Tafatawara was how do you avoid the comms people and how do you avoid the executive who don't want you to find out what's really going on. So that was, Nina helped me through that and, and we did a lot of it after that. Was it partly my fault that made you a bit more outspoken and uh, a little bit too outspoken for the ministry? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, the, I mean, there are so many things that are failing the people working in the health system at the moment. And I came into it not really knowing anything uh, about it, which had some strengths, but a lot of weaknesses. But, but as I learned, uh, I just became more and more deeply concerned every day about how we were failing the people that work in the system, that 240,000 odd that I talk about, because I gave a talk on Friday to a occupational therapist, divisional therapist conference, and was asked to talk more widely about health. And the theme that I talked to them about was I can't see any way that you can have healthy people in a system which isn't healthy. And I can't see how you can have healthy people or a healthy system if the jobs that are being worked in are not themselves healthy. So if we have an ill health society, we have an ill health health system, and we are forcing ill health on too many of the people that work in it. There's almost a a, a, a philosophical change about what we need to do in health to me that's the thing that I've learned from my interactions with just a small chunk of the, that quarter of a million people and they're the ones that we have to think a whole lot more about because they, they're doing that day by day what we saw on the stage and crying the same way we cried as we sat in the audience quite often too. And I'm really glad to bring Mai on the stage as well. So I met Mai earlier this year at a Pacifica GP conference. And I think it was really important to have, um, have you here because I remember that conference and thinking there's so many um, amazing Pacifica doctors here. And when we talk about by Pacifica, for Pacifica, especially in the context of the story, which has so many Pacifica stories in it, you can just feel that in the room because you see that this room is full of people who care so much about their communities, who will go the extra mile for their communities. And you can't just teach that to people who aren't from the community. So I'm really glad to have you on board as well.
Thanks. Uh, I, and I am a crier, so I might cry. Yeah, so in my past life, I was a paediatric registrar and I worked at Middlemore and it was nuts like that. And there were times when if I didn't have a smile on the, my face, I was really scared that kid might die. If they walked in that door alive with a pulse, we tried our best. And when you don't have children and that's your only focus, I could put all my energy in that. But when I had my first child and I was, oh God, she's gonna come, huh? Um, and I was failing as a mum and like people that die, you know, you just feel like failing. And it's a really heavy burden to carry. So much resonates because we're just human, right? We're expe- the expectations of a doctor are huge. Even now, it's even bigger. With my second child, who's now 10, and marks my anniversary of leaving the hospital and going to GP land for non-shift work and a little bit of a better life, work-life balance. My grandfather was dying when I was happy with her. I was pre-diabetic. I was unhealthy. It's everything that he was talking about. I was sick, and I was trying to make other people well. And my answer to how do I make a difference and not kill myself in the process was to change to primary health care, being a GP, because I'm thankfully not the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff anymore. But man, is driving the ambulance is really exhausting as well. There's just so many levels to that play. And, and as a Māori Pacifica woman, it's really lovely to have this play to provide a platform for our people's story that otherwise a lot of this audience would not have attended otherwise. And so I'm very humbled to have allies that bring our stories out to share with the wider community that otherwise we don't get to share our, our our pain, our mama. my name's Mamairoa, which means long pain. <laughs> it's kind of a cruel note. I like to say it's fortitude, so that's all right. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about things because uh, they talk about, Anna talks about that's her family. We do have whakapanaunga and we can probably whakapapa to a lot of the patients that we care for in some way or form. So we're deeply connected, which is in total opposition to what Western medicine tells us not to connect. You're not allowed to talk to that person. People say, oh, do you know that person? Is that your family? And they're like, no, I just met them the same time you did, but that's how we do. We fuck a papa straight away. We figure out our whanaungatanga and then we do a connection because they're coming into, I'm hosting them in my space. It's my responsibility for them to feel comfortable and safe in my presence, which is a lot of demand on you. So it's just so many different layers that this play explores. And I think that's the thing with our healthcare system. It's so under strain. We're under so much pressure that no matter how hard we work in the system, we just don't have, it feels like we just don't have that time to make that connection with people. And I think that we've almost forgotten in this space, like the humanity of what medicine is, that we've forgotten that connecting with each other is as therapeutic as some of the medicines or surgery or whatever that we're trying to give to people. I feel like it's such an important story to tell this play because it's a it's a South Auckland story, but we're playing it here in Central Auckland because I think actually Central Auckland, Wellington really needs to understand what's happening for our people in South Auckland. I worked as a paediatric emergency doctor in at Kids First in Middlemore Hospital for a brief time, and I thought I, when I was there, I found it really quite challenging because you have some of the sickest children in Auckland but you just don't have the same resources that you have in our state-of-the-art national children's hospital starship and it's just it's really hard working in that space.
So one of the fascinating uh, things that kept occurring to me listening to this was in the health system, every Monday morning, the uh, leaders of the health system go down to Wellington um, and meet with the minister, and the minister needs a little check-up on how the whole health system's going. And without exception, the, it's everyone I went to started off with saying, how is the system coping? And the answer was, the system is under pressure, but it is coping. And Ask eventually, any healthcare worker. <laughs> eventually walking out the door, I said to one of the senior colleagues, what fucking choice do they have but to cope? Mm. And it caused some annoyance. But it's true. It's not a way to view a health system. Is it coping? Because the truth is the people working, like we were seeing here tonight, don't have any choice. The people come in the door, they've got to do something about it. They're exercising their humanity as well as their skills. But our, our system has very much industrialised the delivery of ill health services. And when you're saying that it's coping, it's a chilling phrase, really. Well, one of the things, Ashley Bloomfield came and spoke and he did this whole spin on, oh, people say we're in crisis. Crisis just means, and I just tuned out because I was like, I don't, you're, you're like, that's rubbish. Whatever the spin you just said, you, we're drowning. That's a crisis as far as I'm concerned. So however you want to spin that praise to something else, I can't be bothered listening because <laughs> other people are fan him and I'm just like, I don't no, I'm not allowed. I, you know, I'm not. I still enjoy getting a photo. <laughs> yeah, you've done a great job, Ashley, but don't try and spin it around. We are in crisis and we're at breaking point. And sadly, that's it's really dumb, isn't it? We have to hit rock bottom before we realise what needs to change. And it's just hard. I think the biggest thing with being a GP is that I just, I just never give up. One of my greatest skills is nagging. <laughs> so I'll just keep sending those letters until my patient gets their hip. And they'll ring me up and they say, Doc, I got my hip. And I'll say, hallelujah! It's been two years. My special skill works. Uh, and I'm just sheer stubbornness. But I have to balance my energy. I only work three days a week in GP practice and then a non-clinical job because it would kill me if I... Oh, actually, I just get really angry. <laughs> so I, my boss said, I don't think it's a good idea for you to do four or five days. I, think, I said, I think you're fucking right. Part-time is good. But, I, like, you know, my, my hospital mates don't get that option. I was working part-time when I had my first baby and it was like a full-time job. I was doing 40 hours still, so God knows what I was doing when I was full-time. We're all breaking and we can see everybody's breaking. Yeah, the opening scene I really, I don't know if you call it enjoyed. I thought the opening scene was very accurate. I just did an emergency department shift on Friday and almost word for word it's exactly the same. You come onto a shift, the hospital's full, the emergency department is full and you've got three sick calls, here you go, have fun. And, and that's the reality that we're walking on to every single day. And I just think that this show did a really accurate depiction of what our job is like in the emergency department and in the hospital. Yeah, it's been 10 years since I've been in the emergency department. This book was published in 2016 and there's just been no real change on these movies. It's ridiculous. You arrive for your morning shift and they say that the hospital's 120% capacity and they're like, so what am I supposed to do? These people are sick. They need to come into the hospital. And I find it really frustrating when people are uh, complaining about surgical wait lists, the wait time in ED being six hours and so on and so forth. But the reality 
reality is, is having more emergency doctors isn't going to fix that problem. Um, what we actually need to do is move from this, what we've got, which is basically a sickness system where people are just treated for their diseases, but we actually don't have enough incentives to actually keep people healthy. Um, and, and I think we need to be asking ourselves, asking our politicians, where are we going and what action is happening here? I really want to talk about those scenes that we had where um, Rafa or David Geller uh, was interacting with the Minister of Health um, because I think it was really confronting. It was something that really spoke to me because I felt those frustrations that Rafa had talking to a minister about health. He's the Minister of Health and then also seeming to have no interest in health. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're certainly a minister of health rather than for health, in, in my observation of the ones that I've dealt with. And even if they thought about being a minister for health, I think it, 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 would, be a, it would be a positive thing uh, to get some change going. It was so graphic, that scene. I recalled in, in my uh, time when Chloe Swarbrick, if I'm allowed to talk about your political opponents for a minute. Sure, yeah, go on. <laughs> Chloe Swarbrick introduced a bill about liquor premises and their control. And I went and talked to our public health people who told me that the unanimous view was that it was an excellent idea and that it was one... In fact, they had some much more radical ideas about what they wanted to do. So I gave a talk about it in Taranaki, as it happens, and got I got wrapped on the knuckles, which wasn't the most important thing, but our public health officials were told that they were not to advocate for such matters. And the effect on those people, public health specialists who knew what was needed to improve the health in our communities and were just told to get back into line and their professional opinion didn't matter. And you know that's true about obesity and it's true about vaping and it's true about fast foods, it's true about sugar, it's true about all those things. And people won't say it, but I will. They are deliberately stopped from talking out on matters of their professional excellence. Everyone knows what this needs. There aren't any great big secrets or mysteries about this, but the system deliberately tries to stop people from talking out. And I still get, it's falling off now, but at least a couple of messages a day by social media from people saying, please don't tell anyone this, but... <laughs> and I'm scared, I'm worried about my job, but the black mould, the whatever it might be, all those stories you know are true and people are deliberately suppressed by the system from talking out about them. And the Panthers thing is educate to liberate is one of the slogans, isn't it? And it's a great slogan because if you can't educate the public about what the doctors and nurses and other care workers in the system really think, you won't ever liberate it from this stultifying control that goes on at the moment, which is all about, all about money. Yeah, I could ramble on about this for a long I mean, time. You, could, you have to ask those questions, right? Because I think if you, you know, talk to a lot of people, they would say, yeah, we don't want a community full of fast food. We don't want a community full of alcohol shops, vape shops, whatever. And yet we're fed this idea that, oh, it's a bit too hard to do politically. It's not what our voter base wants. But I'm like, who is your voter base if not the regular people, the average people. Yeah, we don't seem to have any trouble if someone says they want potholes fixed or a new motorway somewhere. We, we seem to quickly find the money to do those things, but we, won't, we don't find the money where it's really needed for health. And that require, the only people who can fix that, I'm sorry to say, are my 240,000 people <laughs> that work in the system, that know what it needs. 
all these localities, processes that are going on at the moment, which in principle are a good idea, in practice they won't do anything because they're not going to be given any money, but every locality plan that's been developed so far tells the system exactly what everyone knew, that it's the social determinants of health, the commercial determinants of ill health, that it's the housing, all those things that were mentioned here. Everyone knows they're true. The localities frameworks all come back and say that, and the question's then going to be, and I've heard it, it's not going to be, I've heard it. That's true about housing, but it's not ours. And I think that comes back to the thing about healthcare and politics. Um, I think a lot of healthcare workers want to be apolitical. They don't want healthcare to be politicised. And I used to think that same way as well. But I think the more I've worked in this job and more that I think about the social determinants of health and how everything affects health before people even get to the hospital, get to the GP clinic. We actually, as healthcare workers, we actually should be getting more political because we need to have our voice heard. But because telling ourselves that we should keep healthcare apolitical is really shooting ourselves in the foot because our public health care service is funded by the taxpayer and the high level decisions are made by politicians. When we talk about budget, we talk about legislation and we absolutely have to be politicised if we want to actually make a difference in the healthcare system because there are people <laughs> making decisions for us that we don't have any input on. When the executive team of Te Whara was first appointed, I got invited, I didn't get invited back very often to talk to them, but I got invited to talk to them and I told them about a very famous doctor who was a very big advocate for social change called Shea Guevara. Um, <laughs> and um, Shea Guevara was once quoted as saying, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, the true revolutionary is guided by the deepest feelings of love. And I said that was what we needed from them. They didn't need to take up arms, but they needed to be guided by those deepest feelings of love and they had to see themselves as needing to change this system, not just to make it work a little bit better. And I think some of them got it, most of them thought I was a nutcase. Hopefully not the psychiatrist amongst them. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, what happened was they were all given a free copy of a book by a guy called Stanley McChrystal, who was an American general in Iraq and Afghanistan, as the model according to which they should work. So there was a bit of a gap between the chair of Che Guevara and the uh, management leadership was General McChrystal, I've got to say. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and when we talk about that conversation they had about things like obesity, I think that how obesity was talked about in this play was really interesting. I feel like I've been both Anna the nurse, who is frustrated that people don't understand. There's a difference between personal responsibility and collective responsibility, and I think that this problem of obesity is a collective responsibility. And it, it is both a collective problem and it's also a lifestyle problem because we've collectively accepted that um, people could be living in certain conditions different from ourselves. We've accepted that people live in these communities with more fast food and alcohol and less screen spaces and blah, blah, blah. But I can also understand where Edie, the doctor, comes from as well because I feel like I've also been her. I've also been in that situation where I thought, because I'm so exhausted, because I've got a patient who's sick and I can't get a line. I've also been her, I've also been frustrated in that situation because I think as healthcare workers, we have this, this feeling that we need to fix things and that's where our value lies, is that we need to make people better and if we can't make people better, 
it's like a failing on ourselves as well. So I think it was a really like well played out scene as well, because I can be both of those people. It certainly resonated with the interactions we have with Fano in BBM on our From the Couch program, which is largely dealing with people who are presenting at weighing over 200 kgs. So the, but the approach that Dave Latelli has always said to take is that is not a fat person. That is a person who, in addition to being obese, has a whole variety of other problems. First, they're a person. They have a whole variety of problems. And that's why we use the slogans of no judgments, but equally no excuses. If and Dave's even got that tattooed on his back, he's offered to have mine done, but I haven't <laughs> got that far. But personal responsibility is important, but personal responsibility has to occur in the social and whānau context that people have, not just as an individual thing. In our most recent From the Couch program, small advance advertisement for the research that's coming out of it done by Massey University. What we show is significant improvements in blood levels, so diabetes, significant improvements from the program, some weight loss, but the outstanding thing is the immense change that the program makes in people's levels of measured depression. And it just really emphasises how much this is a holistic thing. It's not just about obesity. Obesity is one part of a much bigger thing. Yeah, everything's all connected. Like, I think I really like the model of health that um, BBM goes for. So it's model of health where, a model of health where you incorporate physical health, mental health, spiritual health, community health, and your connection to the land. In other words, we talk about this in healthcare in terms of the haora Māori approach. And it, it doesn't have to be just like a Māori model of health. I think this is a model of health that anyone can benefit from. It can be part of Western health if we want it to be. Because I think with something like obesity, you can have two people with the same size or whatever, but if they've, if they've one person's got a what we call healthy lifestyle of healthy eating and exercise, they can have completely different outcomes when it comes to things like diabetes and blood pressure and that will have impacts on their healthcare overall. So I think the approach to things like obesity is it's, it's, it's complex but it's doable. One of, one of the most interesting things my uh, Indian Malaysian friend said is poor people in our country are skinny. In New Zealand it's amazing your poor people are huge and it's because we look like we're feeding them, we're feeding them shit. Even if you're not eating takeaways all the time, you'll be surprised at how many families eat a loaf of bread with breakfast, lunch and dinner, and that's got no nutrition in it. It's the cheap $2 packet of bread, but it looks like, food, you know, it's a plate filler. They're having rice, they're having noodles, none of that actually has any nutrients. For my Samoan families, a lot of them are bringing their grandparents over from the islands. They don't have diabetes. They're 90 plus years old. And I've said to them, you need to eat like them. Don't come to me and ask me how to keep her healthy. She's, she knows better than I do. But the problem is their natural diet of seafood, it's too expensive. I can't afford to buy a snapper from the supermarket, you know, and unless you can go out on a boat and fish it yourself, you're not going to be able to get that good food. And so we're choosing easy, cheap, crap food instead. And it's no surprise that our kids are getting diabetes in their late teens. And so there's this whole environment of crappy food. And it's really hard to fight that because the constant message is not just, it's not just takeaways. It's actually the food that they can afford. And it's not good food. There's not much nutrients in it at all. And, and politically, it's for some reason, 
politically it's a lot easier to say, why don't we just fund this diabetes drug or why don't we just fund that diabetes drug or bariatric surgery and all that, but we won't fund <laughs> healthy food for people. Yeah. And I think our country, I'm pretty sure we make 100 times more food than our little country needs, but we export it all. I'm pretty sure you can buy our food cheaper in Australia than we can buy like 100 metres down the road from our house. So I think addressing kai is a big issue that we need to look at because lots of my families cannot afford to put food on their tables and the food that they are putting on is crap food. And there's no excuse for us, this country where we have grass-fed beef, which is pretty amazing worldwide, why we aren't feeding our own people properly. We're surrounded by ocean. Why doesn't everybody have access to cheap kaimoana? There's just no reason. Somebody's making a lot of money out of our poverty. Yeah. Mm. Uh. I really want to bring it back to the theme of humanity of medicine, because I think this is a big part of both David Geller's book and this theatre play, because we see a lot of the interactions between doctors and nurses, doctors and doctors, and with patients as well, and also with Dave and or Rafa and, and his parents. I think we've really undervalued the human connection. And when we look at things like complaints of when things go wrong in medicine in terms of complaints to the Health and Disability Commissioner, like in that, that scene where Tusi is saying that she's going to make a complaint to the Health and Disability Commissioner, it all comes down to communication. It's really hard to quantify and it's really hard to teach and this is something that's more written in David Geller's book but talking about his journey to actually become a doctor. So back in his time he was able to take his time to become a doctor. So he went to university and studied all sorts of things because back then university was we just go to get an education. It's free. It was free, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now you have to go to university just to be able to get a job. It's not about education anymore. The education is about joining the workforce, essentially, trying to be useful for society in some way or another. And so I think one of the problems that we have in medicine these days is that it's so competitive to get into. A lot of people, a lot of young people are worried, oh, how am I going to become a doctor? It's so competitive. I need to get straight A pluses. And it does concern me a little bit that we've got into a stage where we're just trying to get the smartest or the cream of the crop in terms of academic outcomes to, people, to become doctors. Because I, I'm worried that we're not choosing doctors like David Geller, who are there like about me. The <laughs> who I would not have gone on A plus only because that was not I was totally the C's get degrees person. <laughs> but you know, like uh, my my colleagues who were the A plus colleagues that can't talk to real humans, and there was a shift. <laughs> there was a shift in our clinical years. I was like, you can't actually talk to the person. They're no, they're not like a book. They're very complex and complicated. Thank God there's public health that you can go to. No, <laughs> thanks, public pathology. health people. You're really important. And pathology. But, yeah, that communication. But I was like, actually, I'm really good at this job. And I do. I, I Aroha is what drives me. I love my people. And they ring up and they think they're my best friend. But you're only in for that 15 minutes <laughs> that you're booked in for. But I love you and I will do my best. And you have... And, in a place where you're not getting paid the best income, where you also feel the pinch of increasing food and petrol prices, you have to do it for love because you are always going to have to do triple the time that you've spent in that room with that person. So 
Yeah, I, I, communication is definitely something that now I also teach fourth year medical students. I'm a little bit hyperactive, that's why I like being a GP with 15 minute appointments only. And so it's really heartening to see that our fourth year medical students are shifting away from robotic tick box people to have a conversation and listen when the person speaks to you. <laughs> that's the new way we're teaching you how to do your consults, which is really far from what was happening when I was at medical school. Yeah, just veering away from doctors a bit. Doctors always like talking. <laughs> doctors always like talking about doctors. <laughs> Usually, I'm only listening. That's why. <laughs> One of my real concerns in this at the moment is how many young people who would aspire to take a role in the health sector to some extent in one activity or another, who are not just not getting a free university education for it but are having to work while they do the university education or try to do the university education and are dropping out. What about and the kids who are having to work in high school correct. and then having to drop and, out and, and we'll not even get, make it to uni? And, we'll, and we'll never get there. And this is, I think, a, a, an issue that we're just not addressing at all. We have this idea in New Zealand that you can do a quick fix by importing people to fill in these gaps and any number of problems with that and, and many of these people are fine at their role. But we, our situation is not improving, it is getting substantively worse because the people who would come into the workforce, the health workforce, the trained health workforce, are, are leaving school early. If they do manage to get to university, they're under far too much pressure to earn as well as to study and as consequent of that, they drop out of university. And then when they do, if they do manage to get through all those tracks, they find that the system isn't really accommodating a lot of the way they want to work anyway. So the best of them, again, many of the best of them, drop out of jobs really early in the piece too. They find even in placements that, that it's not something that encourages them or grows them, but it's something they feel that diminishes them and they drop out. So. I'm really concerned that not only are we not doing enough about this, that we are actively diminishing the potential for our future work, health workforce at the moment. I want to bring it back to the play again, because I want to talk about a little bit about the characters. I was really interested in how they were portraying Rosa and Leon in the show. So having watched it the second time, I thought it was really interesting, because I knew from the first time that Leon was actually, you know, dead the whole time that it was I thought it was really interesting the way that they portrayed that as Leon is like this beautiful mind experience where it was basically Raph talking to his dad but talking able to express what's going on in his mind and I was really interested in how Ros and Leon's story was weaved in with all these clinical stories as well because Rosa or Zofia is Dave's actual mother she, she did actually survive Auschwitz and those are true stories and you could see the effects of that. She was just a child when she went through that. She was a child when she was in Auschwitz after her dad was shot in front of her and her mother had died. And then she escaped during the death march. 
And so those are real things that happened to her. And you can see how those experiences with that doctor of death, how that affected her still very late into her life. And you could see how Leon's experience early on in healthcare's initial experience with Wellington Hospital with his first heart attack, not feeling like he was listened to or feeling respected and him not wanting to ever go back to hospital. And the same thing for Rosa. You can understand how, oh, there is a bit of PTSD when you've had this difficult interaction with health. And I think I really like the way that they interweave that with all those other clinical histories, because then you can build this understanding of, oh, why is it that some people don't have good trust with health and why do people not engage with us as much as we'd like them to in healthcare? Because you understand, oh, maybe they've had a previous bad experience or their parents or their auntie or their uncle has had a previous bad experience because we actually know that for our, our Māori and Pacifica um, have had really difficult experiences with healthcare in very recent generations. You know, as a Māori Pacific person, we're quite used to our tipuna following us around everywhere and whispering things to us. I was like, oh, I think his dad's not alive. So I was just like, cool, we have 30 people following us around everywhere we go, deciding who's going to tap us on the back and tell, give us the advice for the day. That, it's just so many levels resonated. So my Nui and Nana died when I was only 10 years old. I still don't know what she died from. I tried to get her notes to see what it was. My uncle said she just screamed out. So I, I don't know what my Nana died of. And I still, I'm 44 years old and she is with me right now. That part just deeply resonates with me and her experience. And my dad actually died in 2021 of a heart attack and he was in Australia in this weird little window where I could go over to Brisbane without needing to quarantine. But it devastated me, absolutely devastated me. You know, I have a new understanding of the mental health system after that happened to me with my dad. And it's weird, this play just talked to me on so many levels. And I think the biggest thing is that it shows you why Rafa is who he is. I carry all these people, I carry all this pain and memories myself. And so it gives me so much more compassion for the person I see in front of me because I know it's not just this. There's lots of things that have happened before you even reached me to make you this sick. And like you said, I've got diabetic patients where we've just got to not give a shit about what your sugars are because you're severely depressed and until we acknowledge your mental health problem, you have zero motivations to stop drinking mother energy drinks every day, you know? So, you know, I have to put that aside and focus on your mental health first because otherwise you don't care enough to actually self-care and stop putting the poison to your own lips. So. It's just, yeah, it's overwhelming. I think I'll be thinking about this play for a few weeks like the Barbie movie, which was also ran me over with a bit of a truck. Oh, wow, that wasn't uh, totally not what I was expecting. So, yeah, I think the whole, with this father there, it just resonates so deeply with me as a Māori Pacific, who's, you know, that's our spiritual side, really. I, I felt envious of David, which I felt before. He carries that cultural richness with him very deeply and I've felt envious about it in conversations with him before and I felt envious in the play. I, I come from a, uh, a Paga colonial background and my parents deliberately alienated themselves from the past which was partly, I'm not quite sure why anyway, they hidden and so they, we've ended up with quite an alienated, individualised view of the world. And I often think when I've talked to other people about 
having their tibina with them that it's something I would like to have. So I felt envious of David and that. I think it's something that I think other people of my generation in Pākehā life probably lose too. Uh, we'd be better off if we still had our tapuna chipping away now and again. Well, I hope people who have come and watched this show understand what we talk about. When we talk about in health, we talk about things like systemic racism and how the system has made it so that some people have worse health than others. Um, I think it's a really complex topic and I think even explaining what's going on in healthcare is so hard to do just to tell people. And I think this show has done a really fantastic job at showing what's going on in healthcare and why some of our people have it worse than others. I think like one of the deeply healing things that's happened in my, God, I'm gonna cry. That's okay, you can cry. 44 years of life is hearing te reo everywhere I go. Deeply healing. So when people, Try to shut it down again, it hurts, you know. I was actually raised by my koro. He stole me from my mother when I was two years old and for- refused to give me back. <laughs> I remember, it's one of my first memories, her coming to pick us up from his house and he said, what are you doing here? She said, I'm here to pick up my children. And he said, no, they're staying with me now. And that was that. <laughs> I lived with him until I was 16. And I think the thing with Rosa, it gives you a context of time. It seemed like such a long time ago that these things happened. So my koro was one of those tamariki beaten in his little native school for speaking his language. And and he came out of there speaking beautiful English. If you were on the phone to him, you would have thought he was a Pākehā maid. And he had that old English writing. He hated my scribbly chicken scribbles. He was embarrassed by my handwriting, but it's all right. I did well at school, so he forgave me. But he, I don't think I ever heard my grandfather even say kia ora. And so I used to answer our phone, kia ora, and his brother, who lived across the road, he goes, kia ora, like it was a joke, like it was so weird and I still have a lot of anxiety and I don't have time to learn te reo myself but I've sent all my children to total immersion schools and their deal is beautiful and it's deeply healing. It makes me so proud to hear my six-year-old correct <laughs> and mummy you said it wrong that sounds like well, can you repeat it again I can't quite hear that sound. And it's been extremely deeply healing to have my culture respected and recognised. When I go out to the young people, they say kia ora, and you're like, hey, you're Māori, and then I'm like, oh, you're a Pākehā kid, and you just greeted me in my own, and you speak it better than I do, you know, like, it's so healing to have our culture respected and recognised now, and so, <clears throat> it's that kind of thing, it's not what, it's not about giving me more Māori doctors, yeah, well, it is about giving me more Māori doctors, <laughs> but just that You can make more doctors Māori. <laughs> yeah. Having that whole recognition of who I am as a body and having my 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 culture reaffirmed is amazing. And it's the same thing with my Nguyen culture. My my whānau was around during the dawn raids and we've had the apology, but where's the real side of that? You know, like I said, sorry, we used to break into your houses in the middle of the night and drag you out on the street and ask for your passport. But so what are we doing about it now? Like how are we reflecting? My my nana worked hard. I'm here because of her. She sewed and sewed and sewed. She worked so hard so that I could be the first person in her family to go to university. So, you know, it's it's different levels and things about just giving us space to be ourselves and letting us have that power and mana to take some some part in how we provide healthcare to our people. Absolutely, and and from a 
Tangata Tariti point of view, that's just so important. I think one of the really disturbing things about our debates on health at the moment is that we have drawn attention, no, nothing wrong with drawing attention, but we have focused a lot on relatively minor things, in my opinion, about particular categories of health activity which might be made available to Māori for usually for very good reasons that I can observe. But what we're missing in all of that is the enormous strengths of Māori and Pacifica providers in health at all levels, be it from Ronua right through to more sophisticated technical kind of services. And we've turned it into this kind of negative debate when we really should be celebrating all the positive things there are to learn from both Māori and Pacifica processes because I think our society still does downgrade those and at best it's often quite patronising. We're making, we're making money available for this and that as if that was some kind of an answer, but we're not honouring it for the depth and genuine quality that it has. And I think we're in danger of missing out on, on that. That's why I hate this discussion about Takafaiora and whether it succeeded or failed. It's a totally unfair kind of discussion about an organisation that a year ago was started with too little funding, no staff, and then told to go and deliver something for Māori and suspicion that it's not delivering when it's gone about doing something which is quite remarkable, which is setting up an organisation, setting up, I think it's 15 iwi Māori partnership boards, which themselves are a Pākehā imposition on Māori structures anyway. But getting that preparation all done has been a service to everyone in New Zealand and the idea that we're now downgrading that in various ways and backing away from it or trying not to draw attention to it, I think is absolutely disgraceful. I think it's hard to expect something new like Tiakafai order in one year or two years or whatever to fix a problem that is almost two centuries in the making. Yeah, Takafaiora was partly set up in order to avoid further developing uh, Whanawara, which was already functioning and could deal with a whole lot more, uh, whole lot more funding and support and in contact with all of the Māori providers of health services and housing services. So you could have, in fact, strengthened uh, Whanawara rather than set up another organisation and divert into all of that. In, in the Māori world, Takafaura does have some questions over it as to whether it's the right thing. And there was a lot of resistance from many iwi to the imposition of iwi Māori partnership boards drawn along lines that they didn't really care for. Now, that has all been worked through in an incredibly constructive way, but it, it is, yet again, the separation out and the denigration of, of Manamotahaki is really the key part of it. It's this desperate attempt to keep it under control. I feel like we could go on and on about this. <laughs> we, could. we could. But I will close with just that, that quote that's um, been said quite a few times um, in the show, which is, if I am not for myself, who is for me? And when I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? I think I really resonated with that because it's about if you don't look after yourself, how can you be there to look after everyone else? But if you only look after yourself, then what, what is the point? What is the meaning of your life? If you're not there to connect with your community, to do stuff for others, make the world a better place for everyone else. And 
also that one of the last scenes with Rosa when she's saying we're not leaving a world a better place for the future or are we just not leaving enough good people in the future, in the present? And so just with that as our closing things, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on to this panel and sharing your stories and sharing your insights to this play. I think this is such an important play. I think the only thing that I'm mad about, really, is that it's only here for two weeks. It needs to do a national tour, really. Nation- national, yeah. Tour. Yeah, national tour. <laughs> Thanks. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Um.